With your help, we can continue to fight for freedom, reach new audiences, and bring important information to the public free of charge. This is not possible without your generosity. Join our quest for the truth and our freedom and donate today. Simply go to tntradio.live. Speaking on the issues that impact, this is The Patrick Henningsen Show on TNT Radio. All right, folks, welcome back. We're in the second hour of this live broadcast. Thank you for rejoining us at TNT. Today's news talk, very informative segment with Freddie Ponton, our European correspondent, also an eye on Africa. Freddie's watching things closely. The coup brewing in Senegal. Big changes happening in Africa, and those have geopolitical implications, all of which we covered in the first hour. Uh, so we aim to give you the latest cutting-edge information on all of these happenings around the world, no matter where it is, Africa, Asia, Europe, the United States, Middle East. We're on it, ladies and gentlemen. Appreciate you guys all of our listeners and our viewers on this program. The Patrick Henningsen Show uh, goes Monday to Friday, 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, 4 p.m. till 6 p.m. UK time, all of the time zones in between. Appreciate our listeners, also our viewers who are hanging out in the TNT chat community. It's a little red bubble. Lower uh, right-hand corner of the URL, tntradio.live. You can also access the chat via the app, the TNT Radio app. You can download on Google Play. Also, the Apple Store as well. Just go and get that 24-7, 365 talk radio. Nobody does it like TNT. Now, in terms of big news, uh, I want to play this uh, story here. This is interesting. The United States has rejected. We talked about that crazy uh, omnibus funding bill with immigration in Ukraine all wrapped into one Biden wearing his Ukrainian tie. I know it's embarrassing. It is a laugh, especially listening to Joe trying to put two sentences together uh, during his talk. That was kind of scary, actually. Uh, that's circulating uh, online. I wish I could play that now. We didn't have that queued up. But uh, U.S. House rejects a standalone Israel aid bill. Uh, bad news for uh, Israel. Uh, so short of a few shekels here, legislation proposed by Zionist Speaker of the House, Mike Johnson. He is an ardent Zionist, big supporter of Israel. Uh, it failed to garner the required two-thirds vote uh, to make it through. So not good news for Israel. The House of Representatives uh, torpedoed a bill uh, providing $17.6 billion of welfare uh, to the state of Israel to prosecute its genocide against the native Palestinian population. Does that sound overly dramatic? Do I sound hyperbolic in saying that, or is that actually what happened? I think that's actually what happened. So the failed legislation was an attempt by Speaker Johnson to exclude funding for Israel from the national security package. That's that crazy omnibus bill we talked about wrapping up the Ukrainian and U.S. southern border. Little bit of money for the U.S. southern border. Whatever chicken feed is left after Zelensky gets his paws on the big numbers, um, that's for the U.S. Uh, everything else, the bulk of the money, we need to uh, subsidize Ukraine, uh, and subsidize Israel, uh, two proxy wars, both of them going pretty disastrously. So what's the solution to two disastrous proxy wars? Well, of course, you're in Washington, so it's let's double down on a bad bet. Let's triple down. Let's just find more money. Let's print up more money. Let's devalue our own currency to subsidize a maniac like that little green man in Kiev 
or Benjamin Netanyahu will end up being in the International Criminal Court uh, in the dock at some point. That's where the U.S. is right now. Does that sound like a dire state of affairs? I think it does. Anyway, it's good to see that the, at least this package failed, but it'll come back. They'll find a way to pass it. The Israeli lobby are on the phone right now pressuring U.S. congressmen, senators, threatening them that they're not going to get that check from IPAC and the other Israeli lobby organizations for the next election. They're not going to get that support. They may, well, it's too late to primary them. Maybe that's why you're seeing some independent thought in Washington. It's too late for the Israeli lobby to primary them, at least for this election. But anyway, uh, both sides, Republicans and Democrats, uh, simply were not able to find the common ground required uh, to put all of this assistance together. So Israeli and Ukrainian governments should be conditioned on increased domestic spending on protecting the U.S.-Mexican border. So they're trying to make the border like the pivotal issue there. But the thing that I don't understand is how come the border doesn't get the money? So they're, 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 they're kind of virtue signaling in a way saying, oh, we're, we're all about the U.S. southern border. But literally, literally the sums that they're allocating for Zelensky and his various habits uh, and Benjamin Netanyahu, who is literally a war criminal right now in the dock at the ICJ, this country of Israel for genocide. They've got uh, unlimited funds uh, for these two countries, these two corrupt governments, but they have no money for the U.S. southern border. So I'm not buying it, actually. I really am not buying it. But anyway, they didn't get the two-thirds majority to pass, and 250 uh, people in Congress supported the legislation, but 180 opposed it. So the standalone aid package uh, has been thoroughly uh, rejected, uh, mostly by Democrats, of course, but there were actually interesting here, 14 Republican dissenters on this standalone funding bill. Uh, so this is what's happening. Uh, Joe Biden uh, will meander along uh, into the rest of this election cycle to the Democrat National Convention. Who knows what's going to happen uh, at that point. But anyway, he's is issuing, he's mumbling these various statements, uh, and he's basically talking about this as some cynical political maneuver by Speaker Johnson, months working with bipartisan groups of senators to reach a national security agreement. What, 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 what does Israel and Ukraine have to do with the national security of the United States? I really don't understand that, and I don't know anybody that can give me a straight answer on that. Of course, we know what the answer is. It's nothing. They have nothing to do with the national security of the United States. If you want to talk about national security, what bigger issue is there than the U.S. southern border, uh, which is currently being besieged? Uh, it's an open border policy by the Democrats. Uh, it doesn't take a genius to figure out why they do that. There's two main reasons, which we will tell you. One of them is uh, they want to turn Texas blue. They want to turn Texas from what used to be trending as a Republican state that is now trending as a Democrat state. They want to transform the demographics. And by doing so, all of those electoral votes, which any candidate would garner from Texas uh, in a general election, would go to the Democrats in perpetuity, i.e. forever. So if you add that, Texas, California being permanently blue, permanently Democrat, that means that it will be mathematically impossible between New York, Texas, and California, it'll be mathematically impossible for any uh, Republican to ever win the U.S.
TNT's Kate Shimarani. I'm of the, the belief that your body can totally, 100% heal itself. If you remove the offending things and you flood your body with what it needs. What do your dogs and your kids do when they get sick? They lie down and sleep, don't they? They don't want to eat. They get great big temperatures and they just want to rest. What, do you think you're a special, special snowflake? You're any different? No, that's you as well. But what do they want to do when you go to the hospital? I've seen it firsthand in the last couple of weeks. They're just going to serve you rubbish food, wheat, sugar, dairy, animal protein, tea and coffee, fluoridated, fluoridated, bromine, water, drugs, pharmaceutical petroleum-based drugs. Kate Shamarani on today's News Talk TNT. When you can point me to an industry, to a platform that reaches 250 million people a month, virtually nine out of 10 Americans, that's real, that's substantive, that's important. And that reach and that touch point and that daily reinforcement, it's an amazing place to be able to communicate messages. That's massive. To find out more, go to tntradio.live. I want to say this, and I'm going to say it just once. This is today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome back. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to TNT Today's News Talk. I'm Patrick Henningsen, your host. We're in hour number two of this live broadcast. Appreciate you guys coming back for the second hour. Hello to everybody in the TNT uh, chat community. Now, we're going to pivot over to a very important issue uh, that affects everybody. Now, we're going to be focusing on the United States, but of course, this affects you globally, wherever you are in the world. Uh, with the monopoly that big tech has over the information space, over the global public square, uh, any uh, technology, anything that's implemented at that level, in terms of censorship, speech control, um, it's being done globally. So this is a U.S. issue, but it's also a global issue right now to talk about this right now. I want to welcome on to the program uh, Mike Benz from the Foundation for Freedom Online. And Mike has been very hot on this issue for a very long time. We're going to talk about it, its implications if you're in the United States and what people can possibly do uh, to stem the tide of what is clearly here. It looks like an authoritarian power grab uh, in a technocracy fashion. Mike Benz, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Patrick. So, Mike, uh, AI censorship, just as a general theme, uh, is something that frightens a lot of people uh, because it does take the human element out of it. As bad as we saw with the Twitter files, and which you are very familiar with and you covered, and your organization uh, has done great reporting on, uh, this is a whole nother level here. Um, if you can just explain to us where we're at in this process right now. Yeah, so the, the first thing to understand is that AI censorship is not some future threat. Uh, it's already here. It's already been here for about six years. It was the great technological game changer that allowed the modern era of Internet censorship to happen. See, before 2016, if uh, if political elites wanted to kill a narrative online that was trending or a political movement that they opposed, they would have to hire armies of manual censors to and there was there was not enough to keep up with the evolutionary arms race of the of the popular political support for narratives they tried to get rid of. So, for example, in YouTube, immediately after the 2016 election, they hired 10,000 new content moderators. It wasn't enough. So they hired another 10,000 new content moderators. It wasn't enough. 
And what ended up happening was, you know, I call these weapons of mass deletion, the new Manhattan Project to construct the ultimate AI censorship Death Star to be able to blast the planet of, of, uh, of nuisance narratives off, off the internet. And this was initially created, this technology was initially created by DARPA. It uses a technique called natural language processing or NLP, which is a machine learning technique to, that, that takes every word you say, every sentence you write, every paragraph you tweet on Twitter, it all gets analyzed into a, into a model that ingests what you say and how it relates and how it's spread to the other people in your network. And they create these vast topographical network maps of, of how a narrative is going viral. So you may have seen some of these, it'll have a picture of a high profile individual and, and, it, and it links out to everybody else who spread that message. And they can create this taxonomy of any narrative in the world, you know, um, uh, vaccine skeptics, uh, mail-in ballot skeptics, climate skeptics, uh, you know, abortion, energy, migration, you name it. This was initially constructed by the Pentagon with funding from the State Department uh, in order to deal with the threat of ISIS recruiting on, on Facebook and Twitter in 2014. And so what, it, what they did is they basically pulled together these sort of political thought leaders, these national security figures, and then tons and tons of academics and so-called subject matter experts to parse the dialect, the specific words and phrases, the hashtags, the memes, and uh, the, the prefixes and suffixes, the particular slang and rhetoric of, of the movement they're trying to target. And then every tweet, every Facebook post, every TikTok and YouTube video, because if we're streaming right now on on, on YouTube or, or on Rumble, all of this goes on to a uh, on, into a backend text-to-speech transliteration that's used for closed captioning, which means all that's translated into words. So, so it creates for the national security state a real-time heat map of every political movement and of every trending or emerging narrative that's going on in the world. So it was initially created for those national security purposes. But then after the after Brexit in the UK and the 2016 election here in the US, when they created this Russiagate predicate, all of that came home and they turned these weapons of mass deletion to be able to scan and ban any narrative at scale from a foreign national security predicate into a domestic democracy predicate and unleashed it on everyone. This was how the 2020 election was censored. Make no mistake, when, when the Election Integrity Partnership said that 22 million tweets were misinformation, they didn't manually go through 22 million tweets. The Twitter files covered things like the, um, you know, the FBI telling Twitter to take down 22 tweets. Well, that's six orders of magnitude from 22 million. The 99% the of all content takedowns online originate from an AI toxicity score or an AI hate speech or an, or an AI uh, you know, misdis or malinformation assessment that first flags it to the manual flaggers. And, and, and in most cases, manual flaggers have nothing to do with it if the confidence interval in the AI is high enough. And so this, this is not only used domestically at home to control our own internal affairs. Again, it was rolled out for for the 2020 election, it was rolled out for COVID. The Department of Homeland Security began using it for things like uh, misinformation about illegal uh, migration or irregular migration, and for and for, for climate change. And but the State Department is now using this. And when you, when I say State Department, that means the National Endowment for Democracy. That means USAID. That means our whole NGO swarm of CIA cutouts is now using this to rig every political election around the world. 
that is this this nexus between the State Department and our tech companies and the, and the and the regional desks at the State Department who are concerned with picking winners and losers in every election uh, of of significance on this planet they ha- they perceive these AI censorship superweapons as being the El Dorado gold mine to be able to stop political opposition everywhere around the world so it went from being this thing that was a pet project of DARPA to being rolled out domestically, to being this billion-dollar industry for who can create the the best artificial sensor AI-powered censorship superweapon, and I'm I'm overwhelmed with joy that finally Congress is seeing the importance of this issue. Where is Congress on this right now? What is the level of awareness uh, on Capitol Hill? I know we do have some proactive uh, people in Congress that tend to recognize the importance of uh, some of these emerging issues. But uh, what sort of numbers are we talking about here? Or is this really just a loud minority that's uh, keeping this issue uh, elevated? It's a loud minority for now. And where they are on it is still very, very basic. Because the rabbit hole goes goes so deep on this. You know, I've been... (laughs) I began, I made a, a mini documentary about this in 2018. That's six years ago. And so the level of scale that it is at now is I'm I'm not disheartened by the general lack of awareness in Congress over this because the subject matter is deep. It's technical. It's it's uh, it spans government, academia, uh, the, the the social sciences, the political sciences, the computational data sciences. Uh, a whole a whole web of economic and financial stakeholders. Uh, it's you know it's 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 a huge topic that, uh, unto itself. And the initial focus for the past eighteen months uh, has been on the the censorship industry side of of what we're up against and breaking that open. And I'm and I'm glad now that that has been established unassailably that we can now move into the sort of deeper elements of the technology of how it all works. Uh, but you know three three pretty pretty big things happened yesterday. You had the House Homeland Security Committee hold a uh, uh, hold a formal hearing on AI censorship for an hour and a half, going you know going laying out the basics. You had a you had the Jim Jordan, you know the guy who was almost Speaker of the House uh, and who's probably number two in terms of the power structure of the House GOP. He's the chair of the House Judiciary Committee and the subcommittee of that, the Weaponization Committee, uh, published an 80-page report on the National Science Foundation's role in funding the AI censorship superweapons, which is a story I'm proud to say that I, I broke about 18 months ago, and, and uh, I'm, I'm happy to see this now getting congressional attention. And uh, in addition to that, Congress also filed a subpoena against the National Science Foundation for all of their records, emails, and communications about everything that touches the, the their funding of domestic censorship superweapons. Now, what's really important about the National Science Foundation role here is this is a very difficult task for me personally over the past two years, which is that people are used to seeing the FBI. People are used to seeing, uh, you know, the State Department or Pentagon malfeasance or the CIA or, or the Department of Homeland Security. But when you say National Science Foundation, people say, well, how bad could it really be? The National Science Foundation? Well, so... When I, the, the the role of the U.S. government in in the censorship industry is they have something they call the whole of of government a whole society whole of government structure whole of society folds in the private sector companies the censorship mercenary firms the universities and media and fact checking but whole of government means every government agency now has to lend its own resources into this censorship you know whole of government model. And so the FBI will do things like tell the platforms to take down particular posts and DHS will coordinate on censorship policy with Twitter and Facebook and YouTube. 
But National Science Foundation provides the funding. You see, the National mm -hmm. Science Foundation is not the civilian arm that it holds itself out as. It is, it is, it's basically the civilian arm of the Pentagon. Just like the internet itself started as a Pentagon project and then was and then then was handed over to the National Science Foundation in order to have a sort of civilian front uh, to interface with the commercial and informational and political aspects of the internet. Behind it was the Pentagon the whole time. It's the same thing here with the censorship industry. And the National Science Foundation is a $10 billion pot of gold that, that props up our entire university ecosystem in the US. Let me make this clear. We do not have a private sector free market education system in this country. That is, that is the pretty little face that we hold up to make it look like free enterprise. The number one funder of all higher education research in this in this country is not these not the tuition payments. It's it's not that it's not independent donors and, and nonprofits. It is the U.S. federal government through a little thing called the National Science Foundation. And the National Science Foundation, af uh, after the 2020 election, decided that censorship was science. That in order to preserve democracy, in order to preserve the political hegemony. Of, of the political forces designed to stop any sort of populist reform in this country, they decided that we needed to supercharge, we need to turbo fund the science of censorship in order to stop the rise of political populism. And so tens of millions of dollars began flowing to these censorship mercenary firms. And that's the capacity that props up the industry. So, so Congress is now finally, after all these years, over the target of, of the Achilles heel of the censorship industry. And it's going to be a long fight from here, but I'm glad the fight has started. Now, I want, I want to back up a couple of things uh, that you said uh, just to validate some of the, the points that you made. Uh, those heat maps you're talking about uh, are very real, uh, tracking uh, dissenting speech online. Uh, they they did this under the guise of uh, tracking disinformation or misinformation. I, I was featured in uh, some of those uh, initial heat maps at the University of Washington. Kate Starbird uh, is it. one of the operatives who run that program. That was interesting how that that was funded that to a whole department i'd like to get your your uh, take on that and also what you said about elections mike is uh, absolutely spot on facebook is one of the global leaders uh in election censorship their former head of trust and safety is a former cia long-term cia uh agent aaron berman moved to global election integrity from trust and safety i mean so he's you know if you have a cia person effectively in charge of you know surveying the global election landscape on that platform that is a very powerful uh position uh micromanaged from a u.s tech enclave but globally so those things that you're talking about mike are very real uh and we can absolutely validate everything that you're you're, you're saying there well you mentioned kate starboard at the university of washington you know how kate starboard's uh university of washington censorship lab is funded it's by the National Science Foundation, the very group we were just talking about. Uh, her lab at UW received a joint $3 million grant of US taxpayer funds. So that is money being stolen out of your pocketbook to pay for the people censoring you. So, I mean, $3 million, these people are not running, uh, you know, rocket science labs. They're not, uh, you know, they're not building new renewable batteries. They are literally just reading your tweets and deciding how best to censor you. And that work is being funded by you, the, the US taxpayer, uh, through the National Science Foundation, which finally Congress 
has uh, has now subpoenaed and is and held its first hearing on. Uh, but again, the rabbit hole in there goes very deep. Kate Starbird's network there is tightly connected um, to uh, to U.S. military and foreign policy interests. Uh, it was none other than Michael McFall, who you know. So Kate Starbird, of course, you know, comes from three generations of a very significant military family and has, has worked with Fort Lewis there in Seattle. University of Washington is the Bill Gates University. The Bill Gates family has been on the board of trustees for multiple generations of the University of Washington, which is very close to Seattle there. Uh, and their partnership with the University of Stanford uh, is exactly over the target of what you just said. You know, the, the, uh, Alex, Stanford, Stamos. Alex Stamos, as Stanford Internet observed, he's former CTO at Facebook, right? Yes. And not only that, part of his role as CTO of Facebook was during that Russiagate era when he personally interfaced with the ODNI, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, and uh, to, to censor basically you know, U.S. Trump supporters under, under cover of calling them Russian bots and trolls. And who is Alex Stamos's boss at the Stanford Internet Observatory? It's Michael McFall. Michael McFall, <laughs> Obama's U.S. ambassador to Russia, who was kicked out of Russia, who personally authored white papers on how to structure color revolutions. He put a seven-step guide out, and the first step in that is control the media infrastructure. And so then he goes on to head the uh, the, the the top censorship, uh, you know, the censorship university for controlling discourse on social media. And who is the top technical operative at the Stanford Internet Observatory? It's Renee DeResta, who started her career in the CIA. So you have these CIA and military and State Department, the blob. Um, uh, as as the as the every time you look up, you know, the, and and see who it is who's putting their their boot press on on the thumb of your speech, it comes from those three webs of of the U.S. national security state, our Pentagon, our intelligence services, and our State Department. And you mentioned Aaron Berman there at Facebook. It's the same thing at YouTube. It's the same thing at TikTok. It's the same thing at Reddit. You know, the 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 head of content mm -hmm. moderation at Reddit is uh, is is a, a NATO blob monster who comes straight from the Atlantic Council, which is seven CIA directors on its board and gets annual funding from the Pentagon, the State Department, and the National Endowment for Democracy. What happened was after the 2016 election, the national security state and our foreign policy establishment freaked out that the wrong people were winning elections and they would change U.S. foreign policy and for, and to focus on domestic priorities instead of uh, instead of foreign policy, that they would focus on the homeland instead of the empire. And these are the managers of the empire. And so they said, we do. We have lost our capacity that we used to have in the analog media ecosystem to be able to control bad news stories, to be able to, to put bumper cars on democracy so the wrong people didn't win elections. And so they systematically went about building in the digital era the same sort of relationships they used to have with the editorial desks, and the same sort of, uh, of relationships they used to have with media ecosystems, with social media. And we are now living in the aftermath of that. So, so they they launder this through the facade of academia to give it some like you know legitimacy, like you said very accurately. I think is make it seem scientific, make make the uh, you know glyphy and all these various uh, open uh, API things they use to to scrape data down and create these models of uh, disinformation and things like that. NewsGuard is another one, by the way. Uh, I think they're they're very much tied in with the intelligence totally. uh, apparatus there, but totally. they, it, it it's to give the facade that this you know there's some kind of you know good work going on here that's very good for society but what you're saying mike is that all of this is just 
an extension of the, uh, the you know, the military industrial complex, the intelligence military industrial complex. It's, it's really just an extension of that. And they've completely weaponized it now so much so at scale that it can be deployed domestically and internationally, uh, with, with lightning speed. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. You know, the analogy that I say here is, I mean, this is, this is exactly how intelligence operations are classically structured. When, when the CIA got busted during Iran-Contra running illegal narcotics from South America into Miami in order to fund a proxy war in Nicaragua, uh, you know, they, they didn't have CIA uh, agents wearing, w, you know, with, with W-2 badges, uh, you know, and saying, hi, my name is Edward. I work for the CIA, uh, you know, running the narcotics. And they used front companies like speedboat companies and, and shrimping companies to, to run that in. We set up an elaborate web of offshore banks through the Cayman Islands or BVI or, you know, or, or BCCI back in the, you know, back in the 1990s. And we put together a web of foundations and nonprofits of academia cutouts. You can go on my Twitter right now at Mike Ben Cyber. And you, and if you just type in my handle and, uh, and look up academia, the, the, the keyword academia, you'll see all of the times in the past that the CIA has consistently used university centers as a, as a front, uh, for, uh, for intelligence work and uh, as, as well as how the structuring of all this is, is classically done. It fits that to the T. So it's not just the same playbook. It, it's literally the same players. You know, it's, it, it is uh, incredibly disturbing as well how much money uh, also is being allocated to all of this. Uh, it's become an industry in itself, much like the defense uh, industry as well. It's become a sort of uh, self-feeding uh, feedback loop uh, where there's people, you know, it's funny, the uh, young people coming up through the ranks, Mike, who 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 listen to all of these panel discussions, who uh, are hooked on this fifth generation warfare narrative that everything is potentially, you know, in the uh, cultural space and foreign influence. Tucker Carlson is getting an earful from these same people for going to Russia to interview Vladimir Putin. And they're saying, well, this needs to be regulated uh, because this is Putin's way of infecting the minds of America. I mean, this is just so ridiculous on such a massive level, but that's where people's heads are right now uh, in a lot of the American political space. I think it's very corrupting these sort of ideas that have been allowed to fester, especially since 2016. Uh, and this is, we're getting to see the result of this is there can be a new generation of people who are, are buying into this well, I'm going to call it garbage, but to the point where they're reclassifying the free press as somehow information warfare. Like literally, that's the whole of society approach that you were talking about, isn't it? Yeah. Well, you know, and, and it's not just the young people. You know, I actually think the young people have, you know, what what you call strong beliefs loosely held on this. I'm not convinced that they have a strong conviction on this. I think they have a sort of temporary enthusiasm because of the surround sound media that's encouraging them to think that way. I think if the surround sound were to be turned down, um, there would be mean reversion back to a First Amendment uh, in this in this country. But the fact is, is, um, you know, this is not just the you know crazy kids uh, being taught this by their, their high school and college professors. Uh, this is this is the actual upper echelon of the censorship industries, apex predators and the national security state itself. And I'll give you just a couple of examples. The head of the State Department's censorship arm 
from 2014 to 2016, and a guy who is on the board of NewsGuard, Rick Stengel. He was a guy who was the Undersecretary for Public Affairs at the State Department. That's the number three position there. He, he self-described himself as uh, Obama's, quote, propagandist in chief while he was at the State Department, ran the Global Engagement Center, which, is, which was the main scandal of the State Department for the Twitter files. And he was the former uh, managing editor of Time magazine and, and described himself as a free speech maximalist. Uh, he testified that his job at state while he was working for the Obama administration was to export the First Amendment around the globe. And then two years later, Donald Trump wins the 2016 election powered by free speech on, on social media. And Rick Stengel does the world's most gruesome 180 you've ever seen. He, he, he published a op-ed in the Washington Post calling for an end to the First Amendment and then followed up with an entire book about why the First Amendment needs to be done away with because social media results in the wrong people getting elected. And that guy, again, is now on the board of NewsGuard, the, the censorship sentinel that we've covered previously with the head of the CIA, head of the NSA, four-star general, head of DHS, head of the State Department censorship cell, and the head of NATO, all on the board of this major censorship sentinel. But it's it's beyond that, too. I mean, uh, one of the things that my foundation has coming out at foundationforfreedomonline.com is a multi-part report on, on Stanford planning sessions, this very network we were talking about, where they openly called uh, and plotted a way to potentially end the First Amendment in this country uh, in order to secure federal government protection for the censorship industry. And on top of that, you had the Biden administration's lawyers themselves in the main Supreme Court case, Missouri v. Biden, at the appellate court level, argue that the First Amendment's classical interpretation has to be expanded in light of social media. So, so you have the, the, the Biden administration's own lawyers, you have the top censorship thought leaders, in the uh, in the censorship industry, and you have the apex predators of the national security state all calling for an end to the First Amendment. Uh, we this is this is a fight that is now existential. So going into the uh, we got a, a couple of minutes left before the segment uh, breaks, Mike. But twenty twenty four elections, what are you seeing? What do you think is going to happen based on what you've seen the last couple of elections, midterms, and generals uh, with regards to this uh, issue? What what's big tech moving towards on on, on coming up to November? Yep. So, so our foundation, Foundation for Freedom Online, has published uh, a, a bunch of, of internal documents of major censorship industry thought leaders on what their plan is to censor the 2024 election. Um, if it's if it's heartening to hear, they are um, they are not overjoyed about the state of things. The the House flipping to Republican, the the scrutiny around their funding, the the lawsuits, um, the the bad press that they've suffered. The, the the drying up of funding in, in certain respects and the flipping of of uh, Twitter to Elon Musk and the firing of the election integrity team there with Aaron Rodericks, who, who was recruiting from all these CIA uh, hot zones to, for his election integrity uh, team, uh, had, had, had left them very depressed and dejected. And they they regrouped um, by uh, by basically focusing on two new strategies uh, in order to reinstall the level of censorship that we saw in the 2020 election. One of them is with their loss of legitimacy at the federal government, they're moving into the state government. So this involves states like California, New York, Illinois, Rhode Island, and others passing these mandates for media literacy, which is a whole other bag of worms uh, around, uh, around forced censorship of media institutions that NewsGuard says are low information integrity. Mm -hmm. Literally, NewsGuard is leading this media literacy 
push this national security state, you know, um, den of vipers that we were just we were just covering. Uh, but but they've they've forced as a matter of law at the states mandatory media literacy in all K through 12 schools, which which shoves tens of millions of dollars of funding into the censorship industry to reinflate their capacity to do things like election censorship. But the big one that they are now that they're focusing on uh, in terms of specific takedowns is they have worked very closely with the EU on the new EU disinformation laws with the Digital Services Act. NewsGuard had a formal partnership with the European Union in constructing and um, and doing the code of practice for these new EU laws, which are the number one existential threat to Elon Musk's ability to keep X free. The EU is a larger market than the US. It's 450 million people. It's supposed to only 300 million some here in the US. Uh, and if they get kicked out of the EU, that is existential to Twitter's ability uh, to hold itself out as a global speech platform. It would be completely devastating and it would shift all the leverage to places like Threads, the, the Facebook CIA intermediated uh, Twitter alternative uh, and, and to other social media platforms like like YouTube that X is now competing with on video. So they need to stay in the European market. And this new law compels them to censor what the EU deems disinformation or else give up, give the EU 6% of global annual revenue, which is, you know, an unbelievable proportion. It may even be higher than the proportions of the profit margin of, of Twitter itself. So it's either bankrupt or go bankrupt, um, like lose your global market or, or turn yourself over to the CIA and um, and MI6 and Brussels NATO censorship mechanism. So that is the the horns of the dilemma that X is on right now. And what's so troubling about this is this is not coming from the EU. This is coming from the US and London in the sense that I've watched all of these people for years run this exact same play when they did transatlantic flank attack 1.0 to get Europe to pass censorship laws like Germany's Nets DG in 2017. If you go to my to my Twitter at Mike Ben Cyber, you'll see I've posted all about this. Just type in the keywords transatlantic flank attack. You'll see the whole history of this. They're doing it again. Transatlantic flank attack 2.0, where you had these U.S. State Department officials and these creepy crawlies from the Stanford Internet Observatory uh, and and other CIA intermediated uh, cutouts for the U.S. government who get government funding, who all plotted the ways to, to use Europe's censorship laws to compel censorship of the of the 2024 election. This is a boomerang in, uh, to use uh, the, the our foreign facing Department of Dirty Tricks to censor U.S. elections. And frankly, the whole thing uh, needs to be needs to be interrogated from top to bottom. Yeah, the European Digital Services Act in Brussels is just a convenient single entry point for Washington to micromanage uh, political, geopolitical, economic affairs in Europe. Uh, that's arguably why the EU was formed uh, to begin with, some might say. Uh, but uh, Mike Benz, uh, foundationforfreedomonline.com, we really appreciate you joining us and raising awareness on these important issues here on TNT, today's news talk. Thank you, Patrick. Do follow Mike, uh, Mike Ben Cyber on X Twitter, plus great website, foundationforfreedomonline.com. It's got a lot of resources there, and all the details of what we're talking about are on his website. So you do want to follow that and share that. We'll drop that link in the TNT chat community uh, as well. We've got good numbers in there today. Great to see you guys. We're going to break right now and go to our roving correspondent for an update on the Middle East, Basil Valentine, joining us on the other side. I'm Patrick Henningsen, your host. We'll be right back. 
De-weaponizing weather with reality and perspective. I really don't understand how this trial between Michael Mann and Mark Stein is continuing. And I don't know if Dr. Mann wanted to put his hockey stick on trial. There are so many holes in his argument. It is hard to believe. I don't even understand how people could have let that out without questioning it. And I've talked about this before. One of the biggest problems I have is he won't let anyone look at his data, at least no one that is skeptical of his data. And that should raise red flags. And I've talked about this many, many times. You can go and look at what the global temperature does. When it's warm in the eastern and central part of the United States and warm across Europe, usually the global temperature is elevated. Now, when it's cold in those areas, believe it or not, the global temperature is actually colder. The problem with this whole hockey stick and the recreation of temperatures from pine cones is the areas he looks at and draws his ideas from are usually cold when the earth is warm. So he would not be able to detect that. He would not know that because he's not a meteorologist. If he was a meteorologist, would he know it? Of course he'd know it because we talk about this all the time. They're called teleconnections. So if I were in there talking about this, I'd be asking, where is your meteorology background and are you aware of this going on? But in any case, this whole hockey stick idea of temperature recreation looks to be more of a hokey stick to a lot of us out there. And the first red flag is you wouldn't let anyone look at your data. This is TNT climate and weather watchdog meteorologist Joe Bastardi asking you to enjoy the weather. It's the only weather you've got. From weather and traffic reports to news of political developments. We turn to journalists for the information we need to live our daily lives. Journalists around the world provide the news that is essential for democracy, for personal freedom, and for safety and stability. Yet their ability to report freely and safely is under attack like never before. So many journalists are paying with their lives. They faced exponential risks and they've already paid a heavy toll death threats, online harassment, and physical attacks are becoming a daily experience of journalists in all countries. We just want people to be safe, to be able to get our readers the information that they need to make informed decisions. They checked my phone and realized that it was Pegasus. I feel myself like I'm naked at the street. These charges were politicized from the start. Facts win. Truth wins. Justice wins. C'est énorme pour moi d'être là, d'être libre. Surtout que je m'y attendais pas du tout. Stand with the free press. Stand with journalists whose reporting won't be silenced. Press freedom is your freedom. Patrick Henningsen talks on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. All right, welcome back, folks. Welcome back to the program. We're in the final segment of the final hour of this live broadcast. Thank you to our previous guest, Mike Benz. Very informative segment, uh, a lot of information there. Uh, we want to switch over to the Middle East, uh, however. There's a lot of breaking news right now. Uh, with regards to the Middle East, with regards to Gaza. 
There is a ceasefire deal that's going back and forth right now. Uh, Qatar is basically marshalling that process there as an intermediary between Hamas, uh, Israel, and the other interested parties. Tony Blinken's doing shuttle diplomacy uh, as Israel's secretary, I mean, the U.S. Secretary of State. Um, sorry, Freudian slip there. I want to welcome uh, Basil Valentine onto the program right now. He is our roving correspondent right now for these important stories. Basil, welcome to TNT, today's news talk. Good afternoon, Patrick, and hello to our viewers and listeners all around the world. So a lot's happening. Aid deliveries still not getting through. Israeli protesters or settlers or citizens preventing aid. That's a pretty macabre scene right there uh, that we're seeing uh, in, in Gaza. Uh, right now, the ceasefire deal is going back and forth. I want to get your take on what's happening uh, with that. Uh, Tony Blinken's uh, swanning around. I guess not very popular. Saudi Arabia has broke off uh, any diplomatic relations with Israel as long as Palestine does not have a state at 1967 borders with East Jerusalem as its capital, throwing down the gauntlet there, uh, the Gulf states leading country, Saudi Arabia. There's a lot going on, Basil. What should we be focusing on right now? Well, there's sort of a lot going on and nothing going on, but uh, we are coming to the crunch, shall we say. The you know, irresistible force and the immovable object. Um, the irresistible force being the drive amongst Arab nations and, if we are to believe their words, Western nations for uh, a two-state solution and the immovable force, immovable object of Israel and in particular Prime Minister Netanyahu who say there shall be no such state. Uh, Netanyahu says he told Tony Blinken today that Israel will ensure that the Gaza Strip will be demilitarized forever after Hamas is eliminated. No part of Hamas, not half of Hamas, but the entire Hamas. He added that Israeli defense forces will act wherever and at any time necessary in Gaza, he said, uh, adding that. Uh, Complete victory uh, is in our hands in a matter of months. Says, so says obviously, yeah. well, obviously this, you know, months more war um, puts him even more at odds with the ICJ, who have demanded an immediate cessation of hostilities. Completely ignored, obviously. Um, but the South Africans are going to go back to the ICJ. The ICJ ruling is due in a few weeks anyway. Uh, so while we're in this sort of slight limbo, land, and I'm being very generous to the Israelis and the Americans by calling it a slight limbo land of the plausibility of genocide being committed without the final judgment, um, that period, this period is going to come to an end. And there's every likelihood it's going to come to an end with uh, Israel being found guilty of genocide. And what happens if they continue, as Netanyahu says he will, with the bombardment and the massacres for months after, or even days, you know, after the uh, the final ruling? That's then we're in a, you know, again, a, a world constitutional crisis because, you know, there's got to be some action taken to physically 
prevent the Israelis killing any more Palestinians, which at the moment they show no sign of intending to do. The sticking point on the ceasefire, of course, is that Hamas uh, want uh, a permanent ceasefire from now, and uh, the Israelis are not, not willing to, to offer that because at the moment uh, Hamas still exists. It's still effectively uh, combating the Israelis on the ground. It still has, uh, we don't know how many armed fighters. It still has uh, diplomatic and international presences in Egypt, in Lebanon, in Qatar, etc. So, you know, uh, Netanyahu's wish that the entirety of Hamas be destroyed, uh, that seems a rather unrealistic dream. But of course, while he remains committed to it, the killing carries on. Well, uh, you're bringing up some interesting points. Uh, an activist, uh, Sarah Wilkinson, who's just come back from Jordan uh, campaigning for airdrops for aid uh, for Gaza, she said uh, in a TV interview that uh, the Israelis have partitioned uh, North Gaza, which is really central Gaza and North Gaza, is, is a partition that's all basically being cut off from southern uh, Gaza. So they've effectively created a kind of a green line a petition uh, partition line there and there is no aid going to the north and, and there's still hundreds of thousands That's of people right. still still there so do, do you think Being it's a case of to death israel wants to preserve this project that they've got to partition and then basically take over uh the whole of central northern gaza as a quote security buffer zone is, is that why they they're dragging their heels on a ceasefire who knows patrick what you know one of the things that's starting to irritate Tony Blinken is that the uh, Israelis are not being specific about what their plans post-war are. Um, of course, we hear from the settlers that they want to colonize Gaza completely and, you know, have the you know total ethnic cleansing of the strip of Palestinians. That would be another uh, international war crime. Uh, and ministers in in Netanyahu's own government, like Ben Gavir, say they will quit if there is a ceasefire. Uh, Netanyahu has also, just this afternoon in his press conference, called for the replacement of the United Nations Relief and Works Agency. He says that Israel believes that up to 60% of humanitarian aid going into Gaza is being taken up by Hamas. I'm not quite sure <laughs> how really? he gets that figure. How, yes. how many Hamas? And, how big is Hamas? Are they like? Is there a million of them? And that he's instructed officials to find a solution that would prevent that from happening. Um, so you know, it's a total stalemate at the moment, unfortunately. And of course, while there is a stalemate, the the the, you know, the citizens of Palestine continue to be massacred. With uh, Rafa, the last place, the supposed safe zone in the south. Uh, now being targeted. I mean, uh, mm. I saw a surgeon and his entire family wiped out today. You know, people absolutely nothing to do with Hamas whatsoever are being systematically murdered. Did you see the October the seventh? Have you seen the footage from Khan Yunus, the hospital? Uh, the the uh, the Israeli occupation forces are basically. Um, 
uh, driving the staff and uh, doctors out by gunpoint. They're literally pushing their patients yes. on gurneys out on the dirt road that's been bombed out at gunpoint from a hospital in a refugee camp. Can you believe this scene? This is about oh, as bad as it gets. Oh, it's, I mean, it's sort of, there's scenes that make the Second World War look like a Vickers Tea Party, frankly. Um, they really do. Uh, and we, yet we have nothing but silence from these Western leaders. This is the awful thing. At least yesterday, a crumb of hope, a previous guest on the programme, Medea Benjamin, uh, I saw her in the halls of Congress yesterday demanding that uh, Congress people vote against uh, the speaker's $18 billion aid package. Unfortunately, that didn't go through, as you mentioned in your preamble. So, you know, a uh, a shaft of light there, I suppose, mm. uh, you know, a crumb of comfort, as it were. And also, before we go, because we're running out of time, um, I'm pleased to say that at the Rochdale by-election in the north of England, where George Galloway is standing for the Workers of Britain Party on mm -hmm. an anti-genocide ticket. The Labour Party up there in Rochdale has requested that Keir Starmer not attend. Usually uh, party leaders, particularly in an election year, would go to the constituency where the by-election is being held and rally supporters. And this would be seen as a you know, tremendous shot in the arm for the campaign. But the candidate in Rochdale has said to Starmer, stay away, you'll do more <laughs> harm than good. This after Galloway launched his campaign last night uh, at a public meeting with about 500 activist supporters uh, willing to take to the streets to deliver, deliver the 100,000 leaflets that he's had printed. Um, people who also listen to the Sunday Wire may recall me mentioning that I wanted to have a bet on George Galloway winning the by-election. Unfortunately, I missed the 18 to 1 that apparently Ooh. was available on Saturday, which was, a, that Ooh. was the silly price I was hoping for. Uh, but I did avail myself of the five and a half to 1, uh, sadly, a uh, little more than a third of the price, that was available uh, the day before yesterday, and that has now disappeared and Galloway is now five to two. So you've now got to have $2 on to win another five and various other proportions thereof. So, so you, you broke the cardinal sin. You broke the cardinal sin of, of any good betting man is that you made the pick, but you didn't put it down. Well, I didn't. I, I, I searched. I couldn't find who was taking the, the bets at that point. Don't get me wrong, Patrick. 18 to one. The ones trying. 18 to Ooh. one would have been fantastic. Uh, because, uh, again, on X, on social media, it seems that the Labour Party campaign is already stumbling. Uh, there was footage mm -hmm. of one uh, homeowner um, posted showing a Labour Party canvasser coming round, looking for support and being told in no uncertain times to go away. And uh, the Labour Party is apparently having difficulty uh, getting activists to turn out and canvas on its behalf yeah well Hardly it's gonna surprising. be it's gonna be tight because it always is with the rank and file party but i think uh george galloway is gonna put up a very fierce 
campaign uh, there. And so it would be very interesting to see what the results of this are going to be. How big implications if a guy like this gets back into the House of Commons, of course, will change the conversation. The, the hot takes that we see. Basil Valentine, thank you very much for that news update. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Here he goes, ladies and gentlemen. Big thank you as well to our previous guests, Mike Benz, and of course, the great Freddie Ponton in the first hour. This has been an action-packed, information-packed broadcast. Thank you for joining us. I'll see you same time, same place tomorrow. All the best, you guys. Take care. Take care.